For our second message today, we have a sermon from Mr. Matthew Steele. He's continuing his series on 1 Peter. I think he's up in chapter 5 now. This is part 8. Uh, so, Mr. Steele, turn it over to you for our Bible study. Thank you, Reg. So, I don't know, you may be glad to know this is the last part rug it out as long as I could. Yes, the eighth part. I, I thought that was an appropriate number to finish on, though. That wasn't, uh, it wasn't deliberate. And in fact, when I was um, preparing this message this morning, the song that was rolling through my head and I was sending it across town to Reg was uh, what, what we sang earlier about uh, our, our shepherd and we knowing his voice. So... That worked out really well. So we've, uh, you know, if you could cast your mind back and uh, think through this first letter that Peter wrote, it's, um, it's full of a lot of things, but there's a theme running through it, which is humility, isn't it? Because we've learned about all kinds of things. We've learned that... Um, we're reminded to walk in righteousness and godliness because the world is watching. Our example, as we live in this world, but not of this world, is being watched by those, of us, those around us. Through our actions and our words, we were reminded that they should be filled with grace. That we should show forth Christ Jesus living in us. We've been told that we are not revolutionaries, no matter how much we may want to water the tree of liberty, right? We are not revolutionary. We are, in fact, ambassadors, aren't we? Ambassadors in a foreign land. And, you know, Peter, and with also Paul's help as we've studied it, has guided us and, and helped us to understand that there is a point Yes, there's a point when we can no longer, perhaps, obey the powers that be. But we should do everything that we can to obey the law. To do what the government says. Right up until the point. Right up until the moment that it tries to force our allegiance away from Christ. And when we're looking in the news, well, we can see closer and closer and closer times when... The government can just mandate obedience to things that we cannot submit to. But until that time, we ought to pay our taxes. We are not to overthrow the government, except maybe every four years with an election. So we've been reminded of that. We've been reminded as husbands that, yes, I know it's a unique idea, but we really should love our wives. We've been reminded of that. And that we should lay down our life for our wives every day. Serving, just as Christ did. You know, we're coming up onto that time of Passover, aren't we, where we have the image of Christ. Jesus kneeling at the disciples' feet and washing their feet. He was washing the feet of his bride. So, 
husbands should love their wives. And then, of course, we've been reminded that wives are submit are to submit to no man except their own husband. And that is very important in today's world, isn't it? They are to submit to only their own husband. And, of course, Christ Jesus. In love and in gentleness, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, respecting him not because he was perfect, Hey, pretend like you're my sister for a while. Not because he was perfect. And not because he always did things right. But because of practicing that submission to her husband, she was submitting to Christ. We all must do the same. As husbands, as wives, as unmarried men and women alike, if we were to enter into the kingdom of God, we must submit to one another. And we've also been reminded to submit to one another in the church, to serve one another, to put one another ahead of ourselves, and be a blessing to one another. Because we are all going to receive, are we not, the same blessings in Christ Jesus, in the kingdom. And then, finally, last, last message, we were reminded that in this world we will suffer. We will have difficulty. We will have trouble. We shouldn't be surprised when our engine light comes on and our alternator and battery light comes on and, and things start flashing and smoke starts billowing out. I know you didn't have that, but I, I've had that once, once or twice before. But we shouldn't be surprised, should we, when these things happen. And yet, sometimes we can. Remember, Peter said in 1 Peter 4:19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. So, we come to our last part. And our last part, it looks like probably the shortest chapter, and yet there is a lot in here, in chapter 5. And one thing that's really amazing as I've studied this, and hopefully you've picked up on this, is that even though this letter was written to people 20 centuries ago, right, it is still relevant for us today, isn't it? It is so very relevant. For us today. This past week I read an article, maybe you, you saw it too, but I read an article about uh, two elderly gentlemen in the, in the UK. They are the UK's oldest men. You see that? They, uh, they're not related, but they're both 111 years old. 111 years old. That's 41 more years than our three score and ten. That's amazing, isn't it? 111. They must have been good to their mama. Right? They were born in 1908, just five years after the Wright brothers flew for the first time. Just think about that, what they saw. Just five years after that. All the things they've seen, advancements in aerospace, in medicine, in science, Everyday technology, 
that we just have available to us. From hand-cranked wired phones to wireless calls connecting people around the world. From books being the only source of research. Imagine that, kids. You think homework's tough now. I remember having to go to the library. That was hard work. And then I had to read something. But from, from that to now having entire libraries in the palm of our hand on our mobile devices, they have seen all of that transition. They saw the decline of the greatest empire in the world. They were born under the British Empire. And then they saw the rise of the greatest single nation in world history. And saw all of the United States, the American century, right, as it's been called. All of that they saw. They saw two world wars, the Korean War, Vietnam Wars, countless other wars, cold wars, hot wars, medium temperature wars. They saw all of this in 111 years. They've seen presidents come and go and monarchs wax and wane. And they were asked some questions. Of course, the big one was, what's your secret? Hoping that there really is that chalice, you know, right? That Indiana Jones cup of Christ that can keep us all alive. And, you know, they really didn't have very inspiring answers. <laughs> But one thing I do remember was uh, they were asked, well, how have, you know, things have changed, obviously, in technology in the world, but have people changed? And they said, no. A hundred years ago and today, people are the same. And they're witnesses to it. We all struggled in the same way. We all have the same challenges. We all have the same things that we want, right? We want to be valued. We want to be part of a community. We want to be loved. We want to raise our children in peace. All of those things. He said, no, people are still essentially the same. And so, we can take from that that the people listening to this letter 2,000 years ago were just like us. And it's so very relevant for us today. We have the same struggles and weaknesses. And we definitely have something else in common, don't we? We have the same calling. They are called just as we are. And we will be there with them in the kingdom. Think about that. So what does Peter say in this last part of his letter? Well, remember, keeping the context in mind about being humble, about submitting to one another. We pick it up in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, The elders who are among you I exhort, who I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is amongst you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. 
a lot of things that jump out to me. But the first one that jumps out to me <coughs> is when he says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I whom am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. He didn't consider himself anything other than a fellow elder. Now, why is that important? Well, of course, we have entire church histories, don't we? Entire church organizations built on the principle that the church was built on this man. And it was not. And his own words right here, he is saying, I am not the vicar of Christ. I am not this central figure in which the church is built on. There is another, a chief shepherd. It's built on him. There's no papal authority here. There is instead a humble servant heart. A fisherman, right? A fisherman. And not just, you know, a sporting fisherman. A fisherman that got mucky and dirty and smelly <laughs> in order to feed his family, feed his community. Not a very high calling. And yet, we do see, don't we, through his life that well, he had some moments of pride and he had some moments of excessive passion and he was broken and rebuilt into an image like Christ. Somebody that we could look to as an elder, but nothing more. He says, I'm just an elder just like you. And in the strict definition of the Greek word, he says, I'm just an old man. Because in the strictest definition of that word, that's what it means. An old man. Hoping that, of course, that our elders, when we arrive in that state, that maybe we've learned a thing or two along the way. That maybe we've become wise. Learned from our mistakes as much as maybe learning from others. He says, I'm just a witness of Christ's suffering and a fellow partaker of the glory, the praise, the approval, the glory that will be revealed. Who's the special one in this passage? Is it Peter? No. It is Christ. It is the chief shepherd. He is the only one who has power and authority over the church. And we need to recognize that. Remember that. Then he says, shepherd the flock. And in the Greek, the word shepherd is sometimes translated as caring. Uh, occasionally it's, it's translated as rule, but mostly it's translated as caring, shepherd, tending sheep, tending or tends. But isn't that interesting though that, that Peter's use of the word that the elders should act as a shepherd because there is a chief shepherd. They are not the shepherd. They are acting shepherds. Elders are merely the acting shepherds. There's only one shepherd. There's only one shepherd who gave his life for the sheep. Turn back, if you would, to that passage in John chapter 10 and verse 7. This is where Jesus tells us who we are and who he is in relation to us as sheep and as the shepherd. 
verse 7, Jesus says to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by, by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father and lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring that they will hear my voice and they will, they will be one flock and one shepherd. One flock, one shepherd. Now, I want to make something perfectly clear. I'm not saying our elders are thieves and robbers. Not at all. And I know, I know that you know that. But what I am saying is that Christ Jesus alone is the good shepherd. Only Jesus has given his life for the sheep. Only Jesus can protect us, shield us, guard us. No man can do that. No pastor, no minister or elder could possibly do all of these things to the level that Christ Jesus does for us. It is simply not possible. And why is that? Well, it's, it's the same way, isn't it, that the priests, right? Well, eventually the priests, they would pass on and another high priest would come and another and another. But what does Paul say? That Christ is that eternal high priest. There's no need for this rotating sequence of priests anymore. These men that cannot be that intercessor and cannot be that priest for us continually. Our elders are human. They can be imprisoned. Right? They can be killed. They can grow old and infirm. They cannot serve as shepherds like Christ, no matter how hard they try, no matter how much they sacrifice. They cannot serve like Christ as the good shepherd. And it sounds silly, doesn't it? You're all thinking, well, we know this already. But it's vital that we remind ourselves because time and time and time again, we see churches of people following after a single person, a man, a human being, and their faith driven and, and anchored in that person instead of Christ Jesus. And then when that person fails, as they inevitably will, then their faith is shattered. And so we must remind ourselves constantly. And this is why Peter said, all these sent all these lessons in this letter to the churches so that we would remember and not make the same mistakes. There is only one good shepherd and our elders are not him. 
However, our elders are called to be shepherds, act like shepherds. It's what Peter said when he used the Greek word, shepherd-like. Back in verse 2, he says, Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers. And overseers, that's another interesting word, isn't it? Because overseers just kind of brings an image of something else, doesn't it? A ruler. The overseers ruling over. But in the Greek, the word episcopio, which comes from two other words, epi meaning on or upon, and scopio, give you a guess what word we use in today's language. Scope. To scope something out. I do that all the time at work. Or actually, I try and do that all the time at work if people let me. We scope out a project, right? We, we build a scope of work. So we, we look on, and then we look at and contemplate and keep an eye on. And that's, what it, that's what the word means. That's what overseer means. So rather than translating it as overseer, we could translate it as lookout or watch out for or a watchman. So it reads like this, serving as lookouts. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. And then we get a confirmation about this better perspective. That it's not a rulership. It's not in charge over. We get a better perspective when Peter says in verse 3, Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So thinking about that verse... Those verses together, not overseers in the lording over sense, but watch, watchmen or looking out for the flock, looking out for the congregation. And then, not being lords over, but being examples to the flock. What is the primary tool that an elder should use and really has to use? To be a shepherd. Their example. He says it right here. But being examples to the flock. And everybody who's the elder is now kind of cringing a little bit. Right. But I want to broaden the definition a little bit. Because it's not just those that may be ordained in our church. Elders are the senior elder people in our church that are full of wisdom and experience and life knowledge. So it's a broader definition, isn't it? And even there we might all cringe a little bit because life experience has shown us well enough that we're not finished yet, that we're not perfect. But sometimes we might be bad no matter how hard we try. There are, of course, other tools. There is prayer, there is teaching and preaching, decision-making and leadership. But when it comes to being a shepherd, 
when it comes to influencing the lives of those of us in the church for the purposes of supporting us elders are to be an example both as ministers and elders in the church I was in a a few weeks ago now, maybe even a month ago now, I was in a management training class. And if you've ever been to one of those, I mean, they're kind of the same. They generally talk about the same things because the principles are there. And oftentimes I'm sitting there thinking, yep, that's a proverb. And okay, yeah, that's another one. And stole that from the Bible too. Because all these principles of how to treat people and how to, I guess, make a team of people do things that maybe they don't want to do are found in Scripture. Those principles. And it's really, really interesting. And that is what we find here. And I remember a particular one where it was really, really simple. And this trainer, as she's going through it, and probably everybody in the room cringed because, you know, you get to management, why, you can, you can uh, uh, maybe you can leave a little early on Fridays. Got a little flexibility. You guys can all continue working and heading home. Right? You ever seen any managers do that? No. She's like, um, you need to be the first one there and the last one to leave. Because more than anything you say, they're watching your example. Oops. It's the same, isn't it? The same for every one of us, but especially our elders, being an example of how we should follow Christ. But this is part of the calling. This is the part of the calling of being an elder in the church family. And so then we also need to remember that, don't we? That our elders, they're not finished yet. They're still flawed, no matter how hard they try. So it's up to us to give them grace, isn't it? To give one another grace. And to be patient with one another, even if they are in a position of leadership. In fact, let's jump, <coughs> excuse me, let's jump over to a passage in Ephesians. Chapter 4 and verse 7. He says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he goes on to talk about gifts. And it's important for us to realize that grace is a single gift that's given to all of us, isn't it? Nobody's given more grace than anybody else. We are given grace together, equally so. And we have the Holy Spirit to show it. Then he says in verse 8, Therefore he says, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And then skipping down to verse 11, he said, He himself, Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure and the stature and the fullness of Christ 
that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about but with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body being joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Just as much as we as sheep are part of the body of Christ, so are our elders part of the body of Christ. Of course. Therefore, when we look to our elders, and sometimes they do make mistakes, and when they do make those mistakes, we need to remember what we just read here in verse 13. 14, till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God until we all come to that perfect man. We should not make the mistake of thinking our elders are there yet. We are all working on this together. Some of us are called to teach, some to be pastors, some to be evangelists, some prophets, And you could throw other roles in there too, right? Counselors, those that provide a covering of prayer, prayer warriors. Can any of these lord it over the flock? No. They can equip the flock, as we just read, to be ambassadors for Christ. So the flock can do the work of the ministry, so that each one of us can, through following that great commission, Each one of us can do that great commission until we all come to the measure and the stature and the fullness of Christ. So our elders, being human, being frail, as each one of us is also, our elders are still working on attaining that stature and fullness of Christ with us. And it's interesting, isn't it? For all the extra work of being an elder, For all the different things that an elder does. For example, for looking out for the flock, right? For being those lookouts, looking to help people when somebody is in need, looking to guide someone when you can see them going down a dangerous road. For all the late night anointings, right? And the visits to the hospitals or visits to the homes. For all the hours of prayer for the flock, providing for the flock, teaching, providing for the spiritual needs of the flock, for all of that work, what is their reward? It's the same reward everybody gets. It's the same reward. Turning back to 1 Peter in chapter 5, again, verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God which is amongst you, serving as lookouts, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. We all receive a crown of glory, don't we? We are all going to receive the same reward. Whether we are elders, whether we're young, in the middle, we will all receive 
the same crown. And it's right. And it's true. How could there be any greater reward? Think about that. How could we possibly earn a greater reward than that? Regardless of what role we play in the body of Christ. There is no greater reward he can give us. And that is good. We will all receive the crown of glory. Given to us by the nailed, pierced hands of the good shepherd. He's the one that will give us that. And then Peter does something interesting. He flips it around. And he turns 180. Instead of focusing on the elders, he then focuses on the youngsters. He doesn't leave anybody out in this letter. Because he's sending it to a whole church, isn't he? He's sending it to a complete body with all kinds of generations in it. and All kinds of people and roles. And in verse 5 he says, Likewise you younger people submit yourselves to your elders. Whoa. Now, stop and think about it for a second. You don't have to tell little four-year-olds well, maybe you do have to tell little four-year-olds. In a different way, you don't have to tell your little four-year-olds to submit to their elders, right? They may not want to do it, but you can just pick them up and carry them. As I used to remind my wife sometimes, I come home and she's got two of these squirrely boys and being a mess, I'm like, you know you're bigger than them. You can just pick them up. But who's he really talking to here? It's the teenager. And the young people, yeah, I'm picking on you. So Samuel's head just snap right up. What do you mean? Well, same lessons for each and every one of us. And he is focusing now on the young people. So you guys get to squirm here for a little bit. He says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that can be really tough. I mean, as a, an older adult, we can struggle with submitting, right, in humility to others. But as a young man, as a teenage boy, trying to figure out what in the world is going on with me, and this transition that I'm in and, and becoming a man and what that means. It was harder. My elders, be they a minister or a pastor, or my parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents, whoever we looked to as those authority figures, we suddenly realized that they weren't free of faults. That maybe they don't have all the answers. Right? We started to think that anyway. They were not free from faults. And as I became a teenager, I could certainly see the flaws in the people that I idolized. Did you think about that? There's a period of our lives when you just can idolize your parents. Everything they do is cool. You want to be like them. Because they're 
just awesome. Right, Benjamin? And then we start to mature and grow, and then we start to realize, well, uh, they struggle, and, and, and oh, there's this money thing that happens in, in life, and mom and dad always seem to argue about that. And those people that we idolize all of a sudden start to eh, come down a little notch. They make mistakes. Sometimes they choose poorly. Sometimes they spoke harshly to me. Crushed a spirit that was trying to spread out and, and develop into a man. Maybe they undermined me a little bit at times. I know now, not on purpose. But it happens. They could be dismissive of my concerns sometimes. They could forget what it was like to be a teenager or a young adult. It's hard to submit in humility when we see the flaws in others, isn't it? I, you know, my boss, uh, my, the, the guy I report to directly, he's about four or five years younger than me. And it tells at times. There are times when I'm like, okay, a few more years, you might figure this part out a little bit. Now, I'm running the gauntlet right now because I'm pretty sure he tunes into my sermons sometimes. But that's his own fault. So. But there are times when it's difficult to submit in humility to somebody that has maybe authority or, or responsibility over us. Even more so when we're trying to figure out who we are as young people. It's very difficult. It's hard to submit when we see the flaws in those we once idolized. But I want our young people to think about it in this way. What must it be like for our elders, who we idolized, to suddenly no longer have your respect? That seemingly overnight are no longer as smart as you once acted like they were. That are no longer worthy of maybe the same level of attention that you once gave to them. And again, as I said, this could be mentors in our life. This could be our parents. And as you think about that, think putting yourself in their shoes, I want to ask you a question. Who changed? Them or you? You did. Because whether we like it or not, our elders have been the way, we, the way we are, right, for a long time. And so who changed in this situation? Who is now looking different and looking at people differently? It's us as young people. We're the ones that have changed. So if any of our young people here or online are struggling with this, let me cha challenge you to remember this key piece of information. Our elders, in all of these situations, generally in our life, our elders, be they parents or mentors, have not changed. You have. They're still the same people who fed you, clothed you, 
taught you to walk, ride your bike, do all the things that you learned to do and thought you did them all on your own. They were there, faults and all, helping you do it. And maybe if you remember that, and you can struggle through being a little bit more humble as we try and figure out as young people who we are and what our place is in the world. Peter continues, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. As I said before, this entire letter is about acting in humility, about practicing humility about removing ourselves from being the center of the universe and putting everybody else in there instead. It's about focusing on the others that God has placed in our lives. Husbands and wives and brothers and sisters in Christ. Elders and young people and old people. Every one of us placing the others in the center of our lives. And then of course, revolving around Jesus Christ that is central to all of that. And you know, it's, it's kind of interesting that this is, to me, the, the first point that Peter really comes out and says there's a, an alternate arrangement for those that won't submit and be humble. And you see what that is, right? God will resist He will just resist you. He will put barriers in your play, in place. He will push back. And maybe he's resisting you to get your attention. But he will resist you. So if we are not humble towards one another, in husband and wife relationship, in relationships in the church, between our elders and our young youngsters, if we are not humble and submit to one another, God will resist you. I don't want to get that. But if we are humble, he will lift us up. He will find every opportunity to, to rise, to give rise to us, to, to lift us up in life, in our relationships, in our careers. He will give us opportunity and lift us up. Then Peter seems to do something that it seems a little out of place, almost as though, okay, I'm done, and now I'm getting to a nice little poetic ending. But I think it's all tied together. As I say, he seems to swip, switch topics. But he says, if we, if we walk humbly with one another, if we submit to one another in love, and in the proper ways that Peter has outlined for us, we will be safe, and we'll be in the fold. Right? We'll be in the fold with all the other sheep where it's warm, right? Where we're all huddled together and we're safe and we're protected. But if we step outside of the fold, if we are not humble, if we do not keep our faith, there's somebody waiting outside to greet us, isn't there? 
In verse 8 he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. And it's interesting, isn't it? He switches from being humble to one another. Don't resist one another. Resist him. But when we resist one another, I think we might be submitting to our adversary and not resisting him. Resist him by what? By following what we've been taught. By putting into practice what our elders have taught us. Resist him. How often should we resist him? Every day. He's out there every day. He's hungry and he knows where the sheep are. Otherwise he wouldn't be there. He knows where we are. And you know in today's world we, we don't think about the devil. Certainly society there is no devil. Take your pick. Even in, amongst religious society. The devil really isn't talked about. He is real. He exists. And he wants to kill you. Not just in this life. But forever. So that you are done. Forever. Scary. We need to stay in the fold. We need to stay together. We need to be submitting to Christ and to one another in humility and serving one another and keeping one another safe. Paul says it this way in Romans 12 and verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. This is how you resist. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another. With brotherly love in honor. Giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Not just letting things slide. But being diligent. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints. Given to hospitality. Bless those that persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things. But associate with the humble. You know, who you hang out with, isn't it? Can affect your personality. And he's saying, find the humble and associate with them. Because it will put to shame any high-mindedness that we have. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil, having regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will replay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in doing so you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And the best way to do that is to do it together, isn't it? To be in the fold together.
This is how we resist our adversary. This is how we push back at him. So back in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in faith, knowing that the same suffering are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by, Je- by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered just a little while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.